All right, well, welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you guys are joining us here this morning on this beautiful fall day. Um, We're going to just jump right into it. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah this week. As you just heard, we're in chapter 5. And we saw in chapter 4 last week that Israel, they reach a breaking point as a people. Uh, They're discouraged on the inside. They're receiving threats from the outside. They're being told by the near side to quit by their brothers and their friends and their sisters and their family. And they have every reason to just pack it all in. But Nehemiah, what he does is he turns their attention to God. He tells them to stop looking at their own weaknesses, to stop looking at the dangers that are coming from their their enemies outside of the walls, to disregard the lack of support from their family and their friends, and to look to God, who is their great and awesome God who's going to care for them and, and keep them, and who has already done that thus far, and who's going to continue to fight their battles for them as they go forward. And what he does is he calls them to trust God. He calls them to lean into these truths that they're seeing and also to rely on him as they continue back into the work. And so what happens is that the wall gets built. It gets connected all the way around. It's about two and a half miles. The wall gets built halfway up, so about 20 feet of the final 40 feet. The wall itself is eight feet thick uh, on average. And so things are literally looking pretty good for Israel But while things are shaping up on the outside, what is the literal perimeter of the city, they're not looking great within the walls. So read with me once more, starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For the other men have our fields and our vineyards. So here's what's happening In this passage, the people of Israel, specifically the women here, and this is important, I'm going to circle back to this in a moment, but they bring a serious complaint to Nehemiah. And what they expose is that there is significant greed among the men of Israel, which is leading to financial burden, financial hardship, and extortion, leading to ultimately slavery among the people of God. Now, to understand this, I think, a little bit better, we need to take a step back and remember that those who answered the call to rebuild the gates and the wall around Jerusalem, they left their homes to do this. They left their jobs. They left the fields that they had to tend to. All their sources of income had to come to a stop. And so we see later on that this project takes about two months, 52 days. And so just consider not having any income for those two months, for your two months of living. And then also consider that for many of these people, people were counting on them to be the breadwinner, to provide for the rest of the family. One commentator points out, look, the work that they're doing is incredibly productive, but you can't eat a wall, right? So the wall looks great, but they still need to eat grain. And that's what you see in this passage. What's happening is the people are facing a severe financial hardship. We're not talking about just being delinquent on a couple of bills. We're talking about being on the verge of starvation. You see that in the second part of verse 2. It says, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. They need money to eat. They need money to pay their taxes. And, And what do you do when you need some money? 
You go to your friends and your family. And generally, you, you go to them and you say, hey, I'm having a hard time right now. Can I borrow some money? We're going through a tough time and I, I'll get it back to you. And if your family, your friends are loving, if they have the means and if they're generous, then they say, of course, yeah, yeah, here you go. But that's not what happens among the Israelites. Greedy men take advantage of the situation and they give out loans, but they demand interest on those loans. If you don't know what interest is, it's a cost that's imposed on borrowing money. So if you ask me, hey, Pastor Tommy, can, can you lend me $25? And I say, sure, here's $25. But since you need it so badly, when you pay me back next week, you're going to pay me back $25 plus an extra $5 as a cost for borrowing the money. That's generally how interest works. And you might be wondering, because interest is so normal in our culture, like, what's the problem with this? It seems very fair. Now, we're going to get to this in a little bit. But essentially, what's happening here is that people with money are seeing an opportunity to make more money at the expense of those without money. So that's the problem specifically here. Not only this, but the women in the community, they're exposing the fact that the situation has gotten so bad financially that they've had to sell their children as slaves to make ends meet. Now, I want to make a side note here. This is not slavery as we know it as American slavery. It's much closer to endangered servitude. But you're still facing uh, a situation where you're forced to work. You're losing your autonomy. And the work is grueling. The hours are long. Even still, I think in this situation, some of us might be saying, what's the big deal? You got to sometimes take out a loan. You got to just borrow money. You got to do what you need to. Interest is normal. Sometimes you got to have your kids work in order to make ends meet for your family. And work is good for them. It'll teach them how to work hard and the value of a dollar. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is right in verse one. The worst part of it all. Look at what it says. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Their family here. This is not the free market. This is not mom going to a bank. This is mom going to her brother-in-law and asking for money so she can buy food for her children. His nieces and nephews. And he's saying, sure, I'll give you some money, but next year you've got to pay me back double. Or worse, he's saying, sure, you can have some money, but they got to work it off as my slave. This is a bad, broken, ugly look for the people of Israel. The walls are coming together. The rebuilding is progressing really beautifully. Outwardly, the appearance of Jerusalem is putting the fear in the hearts of their enemies. But inwardly, they're a hot mess. And scarcity is bringing out the absolute worst in God's people. Now, as we pause and kind of take a step back, I think one of the things that we see happening in this passage that I want to draw your attention to is that it is the responsibility of God's people to speak up when sin and brokenness in the community of God's people is present. It's part of what it means to be a member of a church community. And this is one of the reasons why we exhort you and encourage you to become a member of Mercy House, of our church, and not just to be an attender. And a part of this is because we need your active participation for the good of the whole body. There cannot be an assumption or expectation for leaders, no matter how good that leader is, no matter how, how great of attention that leader has to detail. Leaders cannot be expected to know and to see everything that's happening within the community. 
A trait of good leadership is not omniscience. And so Nehemiah is a great example because he's a, he's a shining example of an incredible leader. And this is something that's brought to him from his community. That doesn't mean that he failed in any sense of leadership, but it means that the community, specifically the women in the community, took up their responsibility to care for and to safeguard one another. Biblical authority and leadership within the community of God's people is not about being all-knowing. And biblical submission to authority and leadership does not mean passive subordination. Which I think means, as a church, if you see something that is wrong, if you see something that is broken, something that is sinful, something that is hurtful, something that is happening in the community of God's people that is not in line with what God would want for his people, then I want to encourage you to let your elders and your leaders know about it. Your elders, if you remember here, like the elders are here to serve you. So as your pastor, we welcome your observations and your concerns and want to encourage you to come and feel safe in order to do that. I bring a lot of this up because later today we have a church-wide summit. It's, it's like a big church meeting for our membership. And, and we'll, be discovering, we'll be discussing the discovery of sexual abuse that's been happening inside the Southern Baptist Convention, which was revealed earlier this year in a detailed report. This is something that our church has been talking about. And while nothing like this, uh, nothing, the nature of this has never happened here at Mercy House, Many of those instances involve people who spoke up or at least tried to and they weren't believed and they were hushed or they didn't feel safe enough or they didn't have an outlet to speak up at all. Now this is an extreme case, but this is the point that I'm trying to make. It hasn't always been done well in the church. It hasn't always been done right in the church, but church elders, pastors, leaders have the job of calling out sin when it comes out in the light and calling up God's people to live righteously like Christ calls us to. And so I want to encourage you and invite you to speak up as members of this community. If there's anything that's out of place, then make it known to us and allow us, give us a chance as your leaders and your pastors to do the work that the Lord has called us to do. So practically, I'm available. You can always email me at tommy at mercyhouse365.org. Each of our elders, Jake, Garrett, and Steve, can be reached at Jake or Garrett or Steve at mercyhouse365.org. You can email all of them at elders at mercyhouse365.org. There's a lot of ways to reach out to us. There's a contact page on the website. There's even an anonymous form that we've set up. So you can communicate things that you might be a little bit more nervous or um, trepidatious to communicate to let us know what's going on. We want to know for the health and the sake of our community. So what we see in this passage is that the brave, godly women of Israel, they cry out for help to safeguard their families and one another. And then Israel's leader, Nehemiah, steps in to do his job. But look at his reaction in verse 6. After the report was given to him, it says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. One thing we're seeing over and over again in the book of Nehemiah is that emotions are not bad. They're not bad. Anger is an appropriate response to sin. It is. You see this in places in Scripture, like James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. This is James saying, I Know this, my beloved brothers. 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It doesn't mean don't ever be angry. It means be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So James does lay out for us a reality that when we are angry, we are prone to sin, but the anger itself is not sinful. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 26. This should be on your screens. There should be a slide for it. Paul says, be angry, be angry, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, some of us are prone to fits of anger. We get too angry, and in our anger, we sin. That's a whole other sermon. But some of us don't get angry enough. When we hear sinful injustice, when we hear of people being mistreated or sinned against, as a Christian, like, let that affect you. Let that stir you. Now, don't lose control. Don't go plotting murder. Don't say something rash. Be slow to speak. But don't lean back. We ought not lean back in passivity or apathy because we don't want to get involved in a situation. I think another temptation is maybe to hide behind God's sovereignty as an excuse and saying, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's all going to work out in the end anyways. God's people grieve when they hear about sin. We heard this and, and saw this all the way back at the beginning in chapter 1 when, when Nehemiah first hears about the shame and the disgrace and the brokenness of his people, Israel. He's drawn to compassion for their predicament. He weeps, he mourns for them. And here he's drawn to anger as he hears what they're responsible for. And as a good leader, Nehemiah allows himself to be affected. He once again makes the problem of his people, in this case, the problem of the poor and the extorted Israelites, he makes their problem his problem, and then he jumps into action. Look at verse 7. It says, I took counsel with myself. Now, I want to pause before we jump any further because I think this is a really important notion. I don't want to just jump into what he does after this, but notice how Nehemiah doesn't just fly off into a fit of rage. So he, he is angered. He feels that emotion as he hears the report, but he takes time to be by himself and presumably with the Lord in prayer to think about what has been going on, to consider what's happening around him and then to ponder what would need to be done. And then after that time alone, he does this, second part of verse 7. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said... The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said... We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. 
I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. There's a lot going on in this passage, but this is what's going, this is what's happening. Nehemiah calls a huge assembly of God's people together. He's not just taking those who are guilty aside, but he's taking them all together as a community before he addresses them. And part of this is to communicate the severity of the sin, but it's also to to expose it before everyone together and allow everyone together to work together as a community to work toward healing and restoration and reconciliation. So that's the first thing he does. He calls everyone together. The second thing he does is he calls them out specifically. He names what they've done wrong. He calls them out for lending at interest to one another and forcing one another to work as slaves. Again, we hear this and we might struggle to, to, to see the problem here because lending at interest and working hard like a slave is normalized in our culture. But consider Leviticus chapter 25, which is undoubtedly what Nehemiah has in mind here, where God explicitly tells his people to not do this. Look at chapter 25, verse 35. It says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. The greediness in these men, we're seeing the neediness and the poverty of their brothers and sisters as an opportunity for their wealth. And they took it. They took that opportunity. And maybe they reasoned that they were just being opportunists. Maybe they were justifying it by saying, look, I'm still providing what they need. If it wasn't for us, they'd be starving. It's only fair that I get something in return. It's just how economics works. When there's low supply and there's high demand, prices are going to go up. I'm not being greedy. I think in response to that mentality, God would say that this is not how the economy of my kingdom works. I do not operate under the rules of supply and demands, but by the rules of my mercy and my grace. So if God operated by our economic structures, like hear me out for a second here. Do you know what there's a really high demand for as humans? A way to deal with our brokenness and our sin. Our brokenness and our sin is great. We we have a greater demand for a solution to that than for food because that has eternal ramifications. You know what there's a really low supply of? The ability to deal with our sinfulness and brokenness. The righteousness that can actually wash that sin away. There's not just a low supply of it. As humans, we have no supply of our own righteousness. Do you know who controls 100% of the cosmic supply of righteousness? God. God is pure. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteousness. 
So follow me here. If God were to work within our construct of supply and demand, the price that we would have to pay for God's righteousness, which we desperately need, there's a great demand for it, which he holds a monopoly on, that price would be astronomical. It would be an infinite amount. But what do we learn in the Bible? What does God actually charge us for his grace? Nothing. That's not supply and demand. That's grace and mercy. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I think this illustrates the point. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. So that's the problem. That's the demand that we have. God, help me in this place of being dead in my sin and my trespasses. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the problem. Now look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see this picture that's happening in Israel, and this is not who God is. God does not jack up prices when demand is high. He doesn't charge interest as a means to increase his own position or his own wealth. He's immeasurably rich already. He doesn't enslave his people. He sets them free. Literally, he rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. This is what's being communicated in Leviticus chapter 25. That was his first act of generous grace toward his people. And he could have charged them. He could have demanded a price for his services. That would have been fair to do so. But because they were his people, he had mercy and grace toward them. And he lavished them and he saved them for free. That is the gospel. And this is why God's people and what they were doing in Nehemiah chapter 5 was so egregious. It's because it went against everything that God stood for. Israel was supposed to be like their God, both outside and inside. And they knew that this is what they were called to do. And I know that they knew it because they, they knew what they were doing was wrong. You see this in their response in the second part of verse 8. Look at what they say, or don't say, after Nehemiah calls them out. It says, they were silent and could not find a word to say. They knew what they were doing was wrong. So look, this is not me sharing my moral position on interest or hiring a loved one to do work for you. And for the record, I do not think that interest or employment or even free market economics are inherently sinful or evil. But as Christians, when we have it in our power, when we have the opportunity to extend grace and mercy and generosity... 
like our Father in heaven who extends it to us, we should always, always seize that opportunity to be generous at whatever cost it is to us, knowing that God has paid an immeasurable cost in order for us to receive grace for free. We should always strive to do good, to be like our Father, to both preach and walk the gospel, and not just take an opportunity to benefit ourselves and and increase our own personal wealth. Out of this, Nehemiah calls Israel to repent. He, He makes a compelling case as well in these verses. He appeals to their conscience and their convictions in verse 8. He appeals to their love for one another in verse 8. He appeals to their morality to do what they know is right in the beginning of verse 9. He appeals to their theology and of God's word and scripture in the second part of verse 9. And then miraculously, after he makes this case, look at verse 12. It says, Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. This is an incredible moment for Israel. This is more miraculous than the building of the wall. And yes, I did say that right. We've talked in great detail about what a monumental, practical, and technical endeavor building this wall is. It is miraculous, but when it's compared to the softening of the hard hearts of the people of Israel, to the, to the level of conviction that is required to happen in their hearts, but also their willingness to repent, and not just to repent, but to restore the damages at their own expense. Like, building a wall is a cakewalk. God has done something incredible in the hearts of his people. And what we see here is that God cares more about what is inside the walls than the walls themselves. The walls are important, but what's inside, the people and their hearts, not just the outward appearance, but the inward hearts and minds of his people are what is important. And then, when God's people receive the rebuke, when they humble themselves under correction, when they submit to training in righteousness, and then they repent, something beautiful and incredible happens. Look at verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah wasn't someone who just talked the talk. He wasn't just a person who rebuked and corrected all the time, but he led by example. And you see it right here. I think this is a good reminder for all of us that even if we're not guilty of egregious greed, like we see in this passage, we're not enslaving people for our own personal gain, we're not taking advantage of those who are in poverty, we can always strive to practice deeper and more radical generosity, like God, our Father. Let's read these final verses and we'll finish for the day, starting in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord." I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, we're seeing over and over again, he attacks problems head on. And the main problem in chapter 5 is greed. It's a selfish perspective on resources, putting the needs of ourselves first and higher than the needs of others around us. It can be easy for us to justify this kind of greed today since we live in a very broken world that gives us every reason under the sun to hoard our resources, to want to amass our resources, to idolize our resources the opposite of greed is generosity. And that's how Nehemiah leads Israel. That's how he attacks the problem. He leads them in a, a lifestyle of radical generosity. This is what we see in this passage. He never takes the food allowance that is rightfully his because it is too much of a burden on his people. This is basically a stipend. It's, it's a part of his salary. It's something that he deserves as a worker. But he says, you know what? Keep the paycheck. I don't need it. It's, it. it's coming out of your pockets anyways. Just keep it. He does this for 12 years. It's not just like a month that he doesn't take his paycheck. For 12 years. Not only did he refuse to take the food allowance, but he paid to feed hundreds of other people every single day for 12 years. And then, on top of that, he had an extravagant feast with wine in abundance every 10 days. He himself worked on the wall. We are, we're already seeing in chapter uh, 3 and 4 that he's in the thick of the building. He's risking his life to ensure the success of the project. He dedicates all of his resources and his team of servants to the work instead of his own affairs. And this is kind of the crazy part. He doesn't acquire any land, which you might not see as very significant, but it is. It, this is a huge real estate opportunity. you got to think, if we're talking supply and demand, demand for land in a place that is burned to the ground, that is covered in rubble, it's going to be pretty low. <laughs> it's going to be pretty cheap to buy up some land. This would be a great time for Nehemiah to invest in some real estate, which he can then turn for a profit as soon as the city is up and running. That would be a smart financial, economic move. But he doesn't do that. And it's not because he's not smart enough. He's a sharp guy. He knows that this would be a smart thing to do, but he chooses not to. Nehemiah didn't need to do any of this. He didn't. But he did do it out of a love and care for his people and out of a fear and a reverence for God. That's what you see in that passage. I think for us, this begs the question... What would it look like for us if we are following God? What would it look like for us and each of us to be more radically generous for the sake of our brothers and sisters and caring for other people and out of fear and reverence and worship of God? It's a question we should ask ourselves. There are three ways. We talk about this at Mercy House a lot. Three ways that you can give and be generous. You can give your time, you can give your talents, and you can give your treasure. You can give your time by lowering your shoulder to the work that we invite you to do. That's the language from chapter 2 of Nehemiah. You can also give your talents by offering your skills and your gifts and your expertise and your vocation, your trade to your church family. And you can also give your resources by, by being 
especially or sacrificially um, generous with your money and giving those resources to the church. And these aren't things that we do or that we ask people to do because we have to pay for our salvation. We already saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that God doesn't charge. This is a free gift. But giving and being generous is a response to God's free gift of grace. And the way that we preach the gospel that we believe, one of the ways... We do it by sacrificially giving our time, our talents, and our treasures. And so I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider with me what it looks like. Consider with me and our elders. We always do this together as a church. What does it look like for us to be more radically generous than we are? How can we rely more on God and give sacrificially out of love for one another as, as an act of worship to God who generously gave us his one and only son at no cost to us. And this is what we remember when we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. How great is our need for our free, for forgiveness of our sins. It is incredibly great. It, the demand for it is high. I think for many of us, things might look nice on the outside, like this wall of Jerusalem that's being built up. But for some of us, on the inside, it is a mess. It is broken. It is filled with sin. What we see in this passage is that God cares what's on the outside and on the inside. And he made a way for us to be cleansed and to be restored through and through. Not just the rebuilding of our external walls, but more importantly, our hearts on the inside. Communion reminds us that what we have a great demand for, a great need for, which is out of reach. The cost is too great. It's made available to us for free. And in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins. A complete washing of our sin. And on the cross is the greatest display of generosity that we will ever see. And so I want to encourage you as you take communion this morning to ponder, to marvel, to praise God for the value of this free gift that you as a Christian have received. If you're not a Christian, so glad that you guys are here this morning, would love to talk to you more about what this means for you to receive this gift by faith. There's no charge, there's no cost. And so if you want to talk more about that, if you want to learn more about that, you can come to the back. A couple of our elders and staff will be there. We'd love to chat with you, pray for you, and walk you through what that looks like for you. Before we end, let's pray. Father, you are gracious and extravagant in your love for us. The riches of your mercy are endless. There is none who is more generous than you. So God, we confess that uh, we are not generous by default. We are greedy for gain. We safeguard and idolize our, our time, our talents, and our treasure. And we thank you that your ways are not our ways, God. We thank you that you are generous beyond measure and that you've shown that to us on the cross by giving us your son. 
God, we have no way to pay you back. We have no way to earn this invaluable gift. So we just thank you and we receive it humbly, God. And we pray, God, that you would help us respond to your grace and your generosity with grace and generosity, Lord. Father, we pray that you'd give us a compassion for one another and a desire to be generous like you are generous, God. Convict us, correct us, rebuke us as necessary, train us in righteousness, and give us the power through your Holy Spirit to repent. And God, let us praise your name as a result of the work that you've done in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.